Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we want to take a moment now and ask that you would not only bless the reading of your word, but bless the explaining of your word, that the word might in fact have an impact on us today. Lord, we confess to you that we need your word, we need its refining work. And so, Father, we believe as Scripture displays and as we have seen so clearly in the book of John, there really are two types of people in the world. There are those who walk with you faithfully, drinking deeply from your word, and then there are those who don't. So, Lord, we would ask for you to do a work in every person's heart here today that we might be used for work to be done in the hearts of those that we know and love. For those who, in fact, drink deeply from your word, may we drink more deeply. And for those who do not, may it be that today would be the moment during which you would provide that first taste of the goodness of the Holy Spirit Lord, I pray especially for those who have been deceived and who desire no longer to be deceived. And I ask this in the powerful name of our Savior. Amen. Before we go into Psalm 1, I'd ask that you look quickly with me at Colossians chapter 3, because I believe that in Colossians there's a very distilled and clear expression of the distinction between those who are blessed and those who are not blessed. Those who are blessed and whose lives display that blessing, and then the other category, those who are not blessed, they have spurned God's blessing to subcategories therein, those who pretend to be blessed and those who don't pretend. You might say the one subcategory is a little more honest in their dishonesty. And then the other category is just excessively dishonest in their dishonesty. Lies on top of lies on top of lies. And throughout God's providential economy, throughout history, there will be those in that latter category, those latter subcategories within the church. For those who drink deeply from God's word, it's, it's a joy to hear God's word even though it's painful. If it's not painful, it's probably not helpful. But for those who pretend it's so painful, they'll do everything they possibly can to drown out the truth by patting themselves on the back, by saturating themselves in pseudo-truth, false truth, self-esteem-based 
thinking that just makes one feel better about himself because of some of the good things, maybe a lot of good things he's done. Look with me at Colossians 3, after Paul has made it clear regarding the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the creator of the world who took on flesh, he here deals practically what you might call with an orthopraxy, the practice of truth that is the certain heartbeat of the one whose doctrine is right when it comes to the person of Christ and his church. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then, that's a dependent term, if then. In other words, if you have become the recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ, if then you have been raised with Christ. See that? That's the foundational phrase. If you're in Christ, if you've experienced new life. Now, let's look for a moment at what he doesn't say. That can usually be helpful. I've often said good teaching exposes bad thinking first and then moves into right thinking. Here's some bad thinking. Paul doesn't say, if then you asked Jesus into your heart, which, as you know by now, is a concept that is absolutely nowhere in the Bible. And yet, every person in this room has been in some setting where that was the primary teaching. You heard it week after week after week. So that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, if then you've prayed the sinner's prayer, whatever that is. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, the point is you were dead, as he says in Ephesians 2, you were made alive. So Paul never points fundamentally, rudimentarily, back to something you did. Never. When he talks about the blessings and the benefits of being in Christ. It's always something that Christ did that certainly manifested itself in something that you did. See that? What Christ did certainly, definitely, particularly resulted in obedience. That's, in a sense, the heartbeat of the Apostle Peter. But here, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, now those who like to oversimplify sound Bible teaching will say something like this. In order to dismiss this responsibility, they'll say something like this. Well, God is sovereign, so if God's sovereign, he just makes everybody do that, so why do I do anything? See, again, that's the deliberate misunderstanding of sound, God-honoring, biblical teaching. Yes, God is sovereign, but God being sovereign does not mean that you don't have latitude to disobey him. Well within his sovereignty falls your disobedience. And by the way, you're culpable for your disobedience, just like I am mine. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is a distilled expression of one half of our sermon today. The most important half. The point, really. The man who 
sets his mind on things above will be blessed in this lifetime, and he will be blessed eternally. He'll go to heaven. He will experience joy. He'll experience victory over sin. You know, he won't be that person who says, just give me more time. You know, he's constantly saying, I just need more time. You know, just be patient with me. Instead, he's saying, help me. Look at my failures. They're awful. They're hideous. I need you to assist me. I need us to walk together in this. Will you please bear my burdens of sin with me? Galatians 6. Then in verse 5 of Colossians 3, the other side, if you will, of the coin of spiritual truth. On the one side of that coin is the reality that the person who has been raised with Christ will love to look at God's commands, receive them, and obey them, specifically with regard to setting his mind on things above. The other side of the coin is what he must avoid. Now, it's not unusual for someone to say something like, I don't understand why I'm not growing spiritually. The immediate follow-up should be, well, let's talk about your life. Oh, no, 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 I'm, par- I'm private. I'm just one of those people. I'm just a private person. Well, we got to talk about your life. We've got to talk about your habits. We've got to discuss what you do. I, you know, I have no need for getting into the nitty-gritty details of somebody's life. i got plenty going on myself. But the person who wants sound counsel is going to want to hear and understand how God's Word scathes his heart, how it exposes the great contrast between what it means to be a believer and what it means to be a false believer. He wants to hear that. He doesn't put that off. He doesn't say, yeah, 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 let's get together, and then he never will. He doesn't put on. He actually wants discipleship. So Paul says here, put to death. Now stop there. That's strong terminology, is it not? He doesn't say, you know, just think about how bad your sin is and, you know, and get back to me because, oh, I love you. No, he says, put it to death. Now, you start thinking honestly about what in your life falls into this category, and I'll do the same, okay? It would be good for you and good for me as we read this together to be honestly and humbly thinking about the things that fall into this category. Look at it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthly in you. These are the things that result in discontentment. These are the things that you would love to have. You want them so much, you're willing to sacrifice that which is right and good in order to gain it. The Bible calls these things idols. And when you get to the end of the book of 1 John, Paul lovingly says, little children, avoid idols. Run from them. Do not subject yourself to them. So back to Paul here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's not saying, man, look out for the devil. And avoid your mother-in-law. He's not saying that. He's saying, look within you. And then he goes on to explain them. And, and this is hard to hear because, uh, you know, if you're like a lot of people, you, you read the first few things and you go, oh, yeah, man, that's some bad people right there. Sexual immorality. That's bad. That's awful. That is hateful. That's unloving. It's lustful. It destroys lives. It destroys families. And all of those statements are true. But Paul gets 
more and more narrow in his focus and yet wider in the scope of those whom he's addressing. Sexual immorality, impurity. Who's not guilty of that? Who hasn't thought an impure thought? Who hasn't opened himself up to something impure on the internet this week? Who hasn't done that? Of course, there are those who walk faithfully and work hard to avoid these things. But that's the point. Paul's saying, put them to death, those things that are in you. He's not just saying, set up a hedge of protection around yourself practically. See, that's a different deal, but it's very important. And if you want a very distilled expression of this, look at Romans 13, 14, where Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but make no provision for the flesh. In other words, yes, set a hedge of protection around you. Don't let those things into your eyes, into your heart, into your ears. The person who's putting on Christ is willing to separate himself from those things. But Paul is going deeper here. He's saying, address these things as they reside in your heart. Proverbs 4 is a great place to look at this. Proverbs 4, verse 23, guard your heart. And part of that guarding involves a purging, opening it up, looking at what's really there. It's quite common for me in counseling, especially with men, as we really start talking about the truth about their lives, that the heart starts to get disclosed. And that's good. It's good when it happens with me as well. And sometimes I've seen men shocked at what they were not willing to confess was in their hearts and many times had become completely desensitized to it. And men, if you're not engaging in discussions related to this, you're calloused. If you're not asking other men to watch you and to help you, you have become calloused to these things, and you don't even know it. And the reason you don't know it is because you're calloused. That's what a callous does. It separates you from reality. Paul goes on here, adds to his list, passion. So how can passion be wrong if it's devoted to a good thing? Obviously, he's not talking about passion devoted to a good thing. He's talking about passion that grabs onto anything. It could be idolatry of a very good thing. It could be worship of your spouse. On the other hand, it could be worship of getting rid of your spouse. Ultimately, it's worship of yourself. That passion that's just latched onto anything. Evil desire. You know, you have ill will towards someone. Someone says something about you that you don't like, and immediately you start thinking about how you can say something to make other people have ill will toward that person. Covetousness, you know what that is. You want other people's stuff, maybe even other people's spouse. It's idolatry. Idolatry. And so Paul very craftily forces us back to the foundational truths of what it is to walk with the Lord and it is to have no other gods before him. No other gods before him. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, this is the clear truth of Psalm 1. It's 
peril, its destruction, the wrath of God poured out from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is coming on account of the things I just read. Now listen, I'm serious when I say do an inventory of your heart. Paul's not talking about you searching these things out in your kids. Not here anyway. He's talking about you being honest about the truth of deep-seated, unaddressed, cancerous sin. He's talking to people who have been raised with Christ. Now, let me tell you one absolute certain test with regard to knowing that a person is not in Christ. He never does this. He has no interest in dealing with these things. What he is interested in is hiding them, protecting them, painting this starry-eyed picture of himself Attempting to persuade everyone to believe that he's something he's not. That's what he does. Oh, and another thing he does is he blame shifts. Because that's very effective at getting the attention off of him when his sin is on display. He'll highlight someone else's sin. You know? Place a very large, powerful, spiritual spotlight on someone else's misgivings so as to whitewash his own But then he says this. You might not see this when you first read it, but this is a very, very hope-filled phrase in verse 7. It doesn't sound hope-filled, but it is. Verse 7, in these you too once walked. So what he's saying there is stop it when you're thinking so highly of yourself in contrast to somebody else. Oh, you self-righteous, wicked people, is how Jesus says it in Matthew 23. It's not how Paul's saying it here. He's saying, those of you who have the righteousness of Christ, do you not remember that you didn't bridge the gap? Have you forgotten, like the Galatians, you've embraced the false gospel of man's achievement, legalism? Who bewitched you? In these you too once walked when you were living in them, right? Paul uses this terminology a couple times here in Colossians. He speaks of living in these things. You walked in them, but you lived in them. Walking in them is one thing. Living in them is another thing. It's to be bathed in them. It is that they are of equal necessity to you as air. Right? But that's not you if you've been raised with Christ. You really, although it's painful, you love to be honest about the residual sins of your heart because you know that's going to result in greater joy. You know that it's going to result in greater sanctification, more effective evangelism. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. So which is it? Does God clean us up from these things, or do we kill them? Yes. Yes. When God saved us, he redeemed us, he gave us an inclination for that which is righteous, but he placed it upon us to be faithful to the commands in his word. And you can't do this if you're not willing to hear someone give an assessment of your life with regard to how well you're doing. And me too. I need that just as much as you do. 
You must put them all away. Anger. See, I knew a man years ago, good guy, many years ago. And um, he would do anything for you, and yet, if anything went wrong, he would just about lop your head off. I'll use a fictitious name. I'll just say Joe. His name wasn't Joe, but let's just say his name was Joe. People would say, oh, that's just Joe. And that's the most hateful thing you could have said about Joe. People should have been saying is, I'll go talk to Joe. And then they should have talked to Joe. And they should have sat down with him and said, look, you profess to be raised in Christ. People are confused because you get angry a lot. And you don't seem to be upset about being upset. You just seem to be upset. It's your default mode. When things go wrong, and everybody knows, look out. People should have been willing to go to him. You know, I found in our church it's such a beautiful thing that people are willing to address each other's sin because we love each other, right? What I've found is a lot of times someone comes into our church, and this is really weird to them. This is really brand new. Who do these people think they are addressing my sin? And pretty soon, as a person grows spiritually, he or she says, this is amazing. People actually love me enough to sit down with me and over time help me gain victory over my sin. This is what Paul's after here. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. I suggest to you that one of the most unaddressed sins among men and women, but especially men today, is lying. Because men are so good about lying about their lives. And people will say, ah, that's just Joe. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what we call sanctification, the work of sanctification. How does it work? People say, I just don't know why I'm not growing spiritually. I don't understand why I can't obey the Lord. I don't understand why, you know, there are these pockets of sin, really foundational sin, really the foundational essence of my character is saturated with sin. I don't understand why I can't get more traction. Well, there's obviously a lack of willingness to kill it. There's a lack of willingness to be amongst the body of Christ and to trust that the Lord will use people in people's lives. And maybe you've been burned. But the truth is you haven't been burned any more than you've burned others. But maybe you're thinking, I, I, no, there's no way I can confess my current sin to anybody. They'll just, they'll just think less of me. Just know that if someone thinks less of you when you confess your sin it's very possible that you need to be counseling that person. And maybe you chose the wrong person to confess your sin to. There are plenty of godly, humble people in our church for you to go to somebody and say, look, I, I really, really need help. For me, it's one of my favorite things to do because as a very arrogant man in my youth, I 
realized and experienced the great downfall and the destruction of being unwilling to confess anything and to just lie in order to make people think better of me. Most of our sins are pretty obvious. So by the time we're confessing them, what's happening in the mind of the person who loves you and knows you and maybe is even discipling you, what's happening in that person's mind is just a massive sigh of relief because you've opened the gate they've been trying to gently approach for a long time. And it's been their grace that's prevented them from saying what needed to be said. Maybe you've taken advantage of that grace and assumed that you're just a really decent person because, you know, that person loves the Lord and has never addressed my sin. You know, don't think that way. Do away with all that and just, just think, I wonder what those who love me the most would really like to be able to say to me. And then stop doing that and go to that person and say, what do you think of me? See, I'm getting into the practical reality of how to deal with this. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a home where you just didn't talk about anybody's anything, much less their downfalls, much less their sin. That was never talked about, ever. And largely in the church, the pseudo-church that I grew up in, it was always about putting on a show, always. Presenting yourself better, you know, dressing as nicely as you could, doing everything to appear to have it all together. There was never, ever, ever any discussion about repentance. But see, back to verse 10 in Colossians 3, you have put on the new self. You see, that's been your role all along the way. You're putting on the new self. You're restoring a proclivity, an interest in being conformed to the person of Christ in the new man that he has made you to be, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We were created in his image. Man fell from that state. He no longer displayed the image of God as he once did, although he still bears the image in some sense. But the whole point of walking with Christ is that we are being restored to that image. And that in being restored to that image, those who say they walk with Christ but don't can look at us and say, wow, look at the disparity. And there's a person who actually does love Jesus. There's a person that actually does love people. I'm pretty good at talking about it. I can find my way around the Bible a little bit. But, man, these people are the real thing. See, that's what happens in a legitimate local church. So often in pseudo-churches, people will attend and participate and go to Bible studies for year after year after year after year. And when they look back on that, all they can tell you about is the broken relationships that nobody seemed to be equipped to help them with. Right? You know, you've got this network of broken relationships. The church is big enough that we just kind of avoid those 12 people or 30 or 100 People have told me that pastors have actually told them, why don't you come to this worship service and we'll ask them to go to the second worship service because that way you just won't have to you know, be around each other. Praise God, we have one worship service. Not that it's wrong to have two because it's not, but praise God, you have to deal with the people that you've sinned against and who have sinned against <laughs> you. And this is a collective effort. It's a spirit-filled duty given to us to follow the command that we would be renewed in knowledge, not in emotion, 
but in knowledge. And to have knowledge about these things means that you need someone, and I would say a group of people, to assess you. That you too would be involved in assessing them. That's what people who love each other do. Well, in Psalm 1 this morning, we'll see how the psalmist separates those who enjoy success and delight from those who endure sadness and destruction so that we will drink deeply from and bathe our minds in God's word. I've created a far different outline for you this morning than what we normally use. I hope it's helpful to you. David first deals with the reality of the blessed man. So start on the right column where it says does not. The blessed man does not walk with the wicked. Really, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so the term walk, you understand this. This is uh, the psalmist's use of an everyday concept, not just an everyday word, but a concept uh, as you walk through life, literally, you're walking through life proverbially. You're making your way from one destination to another, from one event to another, from one relationship to another. So this simply speaks of living your life. So the question to ask yourself here is, how often do I walk in the counsel of the wicked? In other words, how often do I subject myself to ungodly counsel? Over the years, as I've gotten to know people and see them growing, see them engaging in relationships, you know, discipleship, fellowship within a family group, every now and then someone has said, oh, yeah, this person's my best friend. Oh, really? Who is that? Oh, you know, just somebody that I've known for a long, long time. Your best friend. Yeah, yeah, it's my best friend. So where is he or she involved in church? Oh, she's not a believer. Best friend? Well, I've just known her since the third grade. Best friend. Best among all your friends. I mean, what does that typically mean? The one who is most trusted. The one from whom you receive the most counsel. The one you spend the most time with. The one who influences you the most. The one who can only possibly have ungodly counsel. That might have something to do with your stymied spiritual growth. In fact, I would say it certainly has everything to do with it. But you don't understand how well we get along. No, I think I do understand that now. I think I understand that precisely, and it says everything about why you're not really growing in your relationships in the body. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Oh, so you're saying I should just cut that person off? No, I didn't, nor have I ever said anything like that. But if you're thinking rightly, if you're thinking with godliness, you're thinking about the fact that this is an evangelistic relationship, if it's a relationship at all. And you've got to sit down with that person and explain what it is to be in Christ. You've got to explain what it is to have the joy of being blessed in Christ in an earthly sense, but also in an eternal sense. So the blessed man does not walk with the wicked. He does not have casual relationships with unbelievers. He doesn't do it. So I know lots of Christians do that. You don't know any blessed Christians that do that, not 
in the way that the psalmist is speaking of what it is to be blessed. Those are disobedient Christians if they're Christians. The blessed man doesn't walk with the wicked. The blessed man does not stand with sinners. It's one thing to walk, it's another thing to stand. And you get the proverbial essence here. It's one thing to walk with someone, it's one to stand and stop and marinate in what they're saying. It's almost, in a sense, another way of saying what the psalmist has already said. He does not stand in the way of sinners. You might say it in our vernacular. He doesn't hang out where sinners hang out. Well, um, you know, I I like to go to places where sinners hang out because I like to share the gospel with them. Uh Uh-huh. Now, if that's true, praise God. Because if that's what you're doing, then praise God. I mean, that's really valiant. It's really noble. But I think often the person that does that is not really sharing the gospel. He might talk about God, some God, but is he really there deliberately to be used of the Holy Spirit to bring about spiritual birth, spiritual renewal, and therefore spiritual growth in those people? If he were, he would be spending vast amount of time being equipped to do so within the body of Christ. And it's never been my experience that someone who does that is also actually faithfully involved in the body of Christ. In fact, he justifies his lack of involvement, his lack of accountability, his lack of discipleship by saying, I'm out there you know, doing the Lord's work when he's actually not. He does not sit with scoffers. Now you're in a third realm of association. You've become comfortable. You've become desensitized. You're no longer walking with sinners and scoffers. Now you're totally desensitized to the impact they're having on you. And I've seen this many times. In fact, as a young, young man, I engaged in it myself with the opposite sex. And that's where it really becomes a prison. You're willing to sit down with someone who is not persuaded with regard to what it is to honor the Lord And you justify it by who knows what. There's so many ways you can justify it. You know, a friend of mine used to call it romance evangelism. He really believed that if he was in Christ, it was his role to find an unbeliever and pursue her for marriage because unbelievers were more fun than believers and then trust that God would convert her. Well, of course, that wreaked a lot of emotional havoc and heartbreak in a lot of girls' lives. And it wasn't really about evangelism at all. But what he would do is find his way into situations where unbelievers would hang out. And then his goal was to conquer as many of them as he could. This is a sad reality in so many young men's lives. As I said, this idea of sitting speaks of becoming comfortable and desensitized. This happened with Israel, did it not? God called them to have him and him alone as their God. And what did they do? They married into pagan nations. It has nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with being committed to the people of God. Marrying in the Lord, not marrying outside of the Lord. 
And what was the response to that? He executed thousands upon thousands of Israelites. And you might think and say, well, praise God, he doesn't execute us today. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But the fact that you and I have more grace does not mean that we have more latitude for licentious living. Our hearts ought to be willing to say, no way, no how would I walk, sit, or stand anywhere near unbelievers in a way that it might desensitize me and make me more comfortable around them and in what they do. But what does the blessed man do? What does he do? He drinks deeply from God's word. Verse 2 says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And you understand what it is to drink deeply. That beverage that's your favorite, that most satisfies you when you are most parched. The one that most people who know you would say, yeah, that's his favorite drink. Maybe it's water. Whatever it is, you know that it's going to satisfy you, at least temporarily. And the more you drink it, the more satisfied you will be. This is the mindset of the person who delights in the Lord. He delights in his word. Joshua 1 verse 6 says it this way. Moses says this to Joshua when when Joshua is about to take over the leadership of Israel and Joshua is scared out of his mind, just as any sane man would be for multiple reasons. He says, be strong and courageous. And he could have stopped there. And if he had, he would have set him up for massive failure because nobody really is. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Well, this is a daunting duty that Moses is now laying on Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So what was the key for Joshua? It's the same thing for you and me today. And it's not untimely for me to ask, what does your drinking deeply of God's word really look like? And some of you might say, I read the Bible every day. That's not what I asked. Are you consumed with the person of Christ? Are you, if you will, addicted to hearing what he has to say? Are you obsessed? Are you imprisoned by righteousness in such a way that you long to know on a daily basis how better to honor the Savior to help others honor him? Now, this gets really practical, doesn't it? Because this is, in fact, the meshing point in every believer's life, the degree to which you are genuinely subject to the Word of God. It involves a number of things. Of course, it involves Bible reading. But we send you a study guide every two weeks. I was talking to Kimberly about this just this last week, thinking about specific people in our church who for five years now have done that study guide faithfully week in and week out. It's just observation questions. We're asking simple questions, interpretation questions. What does it mean? Implication questions. What do I do? And the growth that God has produced in those who do that 
regularly. And I didn't say perfectly because all of you, myself included, have failed in our efforts to complete the study guide. But the whole point of that is being subject to God's truth, that we'd be conformed to his image, that we would drink more deeply from his word as we go through it, and that we would be faithfully and effectively involved in encouraging and strengthening and building up others who would do the same. And if the pattern in your life has been, yeah, I didn't do the study guide this week, you've got to ask why. And other people should ask you why. You know? Well, I'm doing other studies. Well, talk to me about how that's produced interdependence, harmony, unity in the body of Christ. Not to say that it wouldn't and that it absolutely couldn't, but I'd be really surprised if it does. If you're not willing to engage in the study for the sake of ministering to your Christian family. But again, the point in that conversation with Kimberly was to say, in so many cases, I've seen the Lord do an amazing work in people's lives who are willing not only to read the Bible, but to drink deeply from the Bible, to do the study guide. Oh, and also to sit under sound preaching with regular faithfulness. You know, when you're working in the children's ministry, going online and listening to the message, whether it's me or somebody else preaching, but you're connected to your local church's ministry of the word. And, and often... People will say things like, well, I listen to John MacArthur. Good for you that you're supplementing your Christian growth by occasionally or maybe even regularly listening to someone else. But the faithful believer is going to be faithfully connected to his local church, drinking deeply from the same passages of Scripture in such a way that we're going to grow in our ability to reach the world. So... He drinks deeply from God's word. He also meditates on God's word. And, of course, he prospers in all he does. Prospers spiritually. By no means is the psalmist saying that you're going to be wealthy. You might be. Some of you might be wealthy, somehow even traceable back to your spiritual faithfulness. Certainly, God in his providence has determined that some faithful believers would be financially wealthy. But there's no promise of that person who pursues that for the sake of having that is not faithful to the Lord, pursuing money for the sake of having money. The person who pursues money for the sake of investing in heaven, now God honors that. What is he like? He's like a tree that is well watered. Where I grew up, creeks, rivers, spent a lot of time in a canoe, a lot of time rafting, it was very common to come around a bend and see the roots of a tree sticking out over the bank. And you might look at that and think, whoa, that tree is in big trouble now because there's so many more roots that you can't see, and they're constantly fed by that water. That is the blessed man. He's constantly fed by the water of the word, which is why Paul uses that terminology in a man's life with regard to his wife. He's constantly washing his wife gently with the water of the word. He's bringing the word to bear upon her heart because he's bringing the word to bear upon his heart. And that change in him is resulting in change in her. He's growing. He's strengthened as a result of that. This tree-like spiritual persona is not only well-watered, it is high-producing. It is high-yielding. 
The psalmist says he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. He's high-producing, but he's strong and healthy. That's why the psalmist is very particular to say, like the tree that yields its fruit in its season. It's one thing to yield a little bit of fruit just prior to the season and maybe some after, but in the depth of the season, that's when an apple tree really produces. That's when a peach tree really produces. We have an amazing peach tree in our backyard. I say amazing because I've never done anything to it, and it still produces the most amazing peaches. What do we do to it? I set the water timer pretty much. Occasionally, I'll go out there and water it a little extra. What's this phrase, though, that the leaf never withers? Because certainly no healthy tree keeps its leaves year-round. An unhealthy tree will show withered leaves in season. A healthy tree drops its non-withered leaves in the right timing. It follows the mandates of the season. But the healthy tree doesn't have withered leaves. They just fall off in a healthy state when they're supposed to. They do what they're supposed to do. In the same way, the healthy, strong, blessed man or woman doesn't look like a withered leaf on a dying tree, but he will be pruned. Leaves will fall off. Some will be clipped off. And while it's painful, he's developed the ability, just like that water-saturated tree, moment in and moment out, constantly, right? That tree is never not drinking that's planted next to streams of water. It doesn't depend upon a sprinkler system to water it three times a week. It's constantly fed. The man who is constantly fed never withers. And in the face of the greatest trial, the greatest pruning effort by the eternal landscaper, that results in a willingness to say, this was painful, but I embrace it. It's God's sovereign design for me. And he doesn't just bounce back. He shrinks in devastation. But he stands up and he says, I will be strong in the Lord because the Lord has been good. He's pruning me. He's behind this. He's the one who is refining me. And it's worth repeating he will prosper in all he does. How do you measure this in somebody's life? How do you know who this person is? Look at who's following him. Don't look so much at what he does. Yes, look at what he does, but look at whether or not he's having an influence on other people. And if he is, what is that influence? The person who's bearing fruit, the person who seems like that tree that bears fruit in its season, you know, so much fruit that you've got to ask other people, hey, would you like some tomatoes? i got more than I can use. That's the idea. You're passing on the spiritual fruit to others. You're influencing other people with your life. Too many people fake this. And what you ought to be looking for if you're wondering whether or not someone is actually faithful is the degree to which he's willing to take up ministry. Now, if you're new in our church, start small. Help clean the bathrooms. You know, that's part of our family group ministry. The person who says, you know, I'm not really into cleaning other people's toilets. 
expects other people to do it. They have no problem with somebody cleaning their toilet, but no interest in doing it for anybody else. And I've often said the humble man is not a man who cleans toilets. It's a man who cleans them well. But sadly, there are those who think they're above certain ministries, and so they never get involved in anything. They're not willing to come in the gateway because the gateway's dirty. It's trampled. There's a rut. Too much traffic. Too much stuff going on there. Well, let's look at the wicked man. The wicked man will not be blessed. That's the whole idea of this passage. The man who maintains a devotion to wickedness because he doesn't meditate on the word. He doesn't drink deeply and regularly from the powerful word of God. He will not be blessed. But also, he won't stand against the wind. The illustration here, as you can see in verse 4, the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The, the chaff is what comes off the wheat when it's beaten on the threshing floor, and when the wind blows by, it, it takes all the chaff away. And some of you have experienced this when you're eating some sort of nut that comes with a husk, but it's in the factory it was mostly all removed, except for that one little piece that you weren't expecting, and it was shocking. Chaff is supposed to be removed because it's worthless. And that which is worthless gets blown away in the wind. And this is very similar to Peter's terminology in 2 Peter 1, where he says, do not be useless. Don't let yourself be found fruitless. You know, the person that looks at his life, and he can, he can call attention to activity, but it, by no means can he call attention to the conforming of a person's life to Christ. There's none of that at least not as a result of his influence. So he won't be blessed, but he also will not stand against the wind. He also will not stand in God's judgment. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the distinction between walking by the Spirit and walking in the flesh. You remember that, Romans 8? The flesh has nothing to do with the Spirit. And again, this is where the Scripture gets very black and white. Friends, you are either a person who delights in the Word of God or you are a person who sits under God's judgment. And the sad reality is that while there are many people who would say, yeah, I don't want anything to do with the Lord, and they, they might say something like, yeah, sure, I see that I probably sit under God's judgment, the far greater and more serious reality is that there are those who are in a church pew week after week after week and are deceived and deliberately deceive themselves and others into thinking that they're not under God's judgment, but because they know how to find their way around a concordance on their phone, that they somehow might actually not be under God's judgment. Psalm 1 is a massive wake-up call, not simply to what it means to be under God's judgment, but with regard to the fact that you are under God's judgment if you are not drinking deeply from God's word. Now, let me soothe your soul by telling you that this has many different manifestations, but certainly there will be an ebb and flow throughout your life where you are drinking deeply from God's word by receiving eagerly sound teaching, also reading, 
You ought to be singing God's word, but yes, there are going to be dry spells very likely throughout your life where one or the other of those things is not so much a passion for you in the moment. So think of it this way. To the degree that you are meditating on, drinking deeply from God's word is the degree to which you're prospering spiritually. But on the other hand, if you found it very, very easy to do other things, which it's pretty easy to do in our culture, how many different things do you think we could come up with right now in a matter of about 30 seconds on the Internet that you could find your way into? When I was preaching back in the 80s, it was television. It was sitcoms. It was all kinds of stuff. It was music. I found a 70s, 80s, and 90s station on the radio last night, which I don't listen to, but I did last night. Memories of being in college, even some from high school. <laughs> some of those fun friendships of college football. And I was listening to a song by a woman named Joan Jett. I love rock and roll. And I started thinking, that's a cool song. And then I listened to the lyrics. Have you ever listened to the lyrics of I love rock and roll? It's about a girl who sees a guy standing next to a jukebox. And eventually, she has the courage to go and ask him his name and he says, doesn't matter anyway. And he takes her home. And they sang together, I love rock and roll. Satan uses music. It's only a song. Seriously? Who gave us song and why? Do you give us song for mind-numbing, senseless, worthless conduct that we can listen to it while we work because it's something we're familiar with? Or did he give music and song to us so that we could exalt him from our hearts? Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 tell us that song was given to us to teach each other, to teach each other, to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing unto the Lord. That's what music is for, not for you to kind of slip into some better work mode because you know the lyrics to a bunch of 80s music. You get my point? What are you doing that might very well look like walking with the wicked? Standing with sinners, being seated with the wicked. Well, the wicked man won't prosper. He won't be blessed. He won't stand against the wind. He won't stand in God's judgment. You see, God judges the conduct of the believer and the unbeliever, and ultimately the judgment against the unbeliever is one of eternal wrath. He also will not stand with the righteous, and this is where it gets really practical. Things like involvement with the body are a matter of convenience. He does what he does with the body only when it fits the schedule that he prefers. Rather than working around his time with the body of Christ, he might say something like, well, we can do that on Sunday. I mean, Sunday's the wild card day, right? Now listen, I'm not a legalist. So if you've missed a Sunday because you went on vacation, good for you. You should do that. So don't jump to something I'm not saying. The point is you love the body. 
Kimberly said to me this morning through tears, but I want to go. I miss them. I wanted to say, we haven't even missed a Sunday yet. What do you mean you miss them? But she was anticipating not seeing you this morning. And I said, I think you get a pass today. You just had your knee cut practically in half. In fact, I'm pretty convinced you need to stay home. I don't want you getting hurt nor hurting someone else. See, that's the, that's the longing of the person who doesn't sit under God's judgment. He drinks deeply from the Word of God. He wants to be around the people of God, and he, he benefits immensely from being around the people of God, even when it is perhaps occasionally painful. The wicked man will not stand with the righteous. And what will he be? He'll be destroyed. He'll be destroyed. The Seventh-day Adventist group likes to play around with this idea that they call annihilationism. You could say unbelievers are annihilated, but they don't cease to exist. They don't go into some sleep mode. They sit under conscious, eternal, fire-filled torment forever. And let me tell you how you and I could respond to that in two ways. You could respond to that by saying, yep, that's what they deserve. Or you could say, God, help us to help them. And that would be the better mindset, would it not? Such were you. And me, we didn't lift ourselves out of that state. God resurrected us unto new life, impassioned us for his glory and for the salvation of the lost. Let's wrap up with a quick caricature study on two men. Peter. What did Peter do? that we might look back on and say, now there's a guy that seemingly earned his salvation. No, Peter was a buffoon. And in his early spiritual state, he denied the Savior in particular contexts where you and I would probably look back and say, I would never do that. Peter thought the same thing. He told Christ that exactly. I'd go to prison for you. And he wasn't even willing to hang on to his name in public. But I would suggest for you and me, it's not so much in public where we ought to be asking this question about ourselves. It's in private. To what degree do we genuinely drink deeply from his word? Peter was exposed to the Lord's word on a personal, tactile basis, walking with the Savior, and yet he denied him. And then he had this bizarre conversation around that time where Peter couldn't understand what Jesus was asking him. Will you love my sheep? Will you care for my sheep? Peter's response showed that he didn't understand what it meant to be a shepherd. And then who gives us these wonderful words in 1 Peter 5? Shepherd the flock of God among you. He says that to those who shepherd the flock as a fellow elder, a fellow Shepherd, a man who would give his life for people. That's who Peter became. 
The second man, of course, you might not be surprised that we want to talk about is Judas. How was Judas any less guilty, any less culpable than Peter? What was the difference? The difference was that Judas ultimately rested in his ability to gain favor by killing himself, thinking that that would somehow cover his remorse, his guilt. Peter, on the other hand, rested in the work of Christ. Judas rested in his own work. Judas rested in his own work. It's what he did all along. Peter, on the other hand, rests in the word of the Lord. I want to ask you and really ask myself, to what degree are we not only delighting in the word of God, but honestly doing an assessment? I want to suggest to you, and this might sound like a tall task, but I guarantee you it won't take long. This is going to sound like, wow, when am I going to have time to do that? And the more you think about it, I think the more you're going to be convinced that it won't take much time at all. I want to ask you to go to 10 people. 10. Now, not your mom. You know, not your third grade school teacher. I want you to go to 10 people who are legitimately considered to be faithful, godly Christians. You can easily find 100 in our church. Go to 10 people and ask them to assess your life. And if they're faithful to you, they're going to start asking questions about how you respond to the Word of God. Are you drinking deeply from the Word of God? So I'm helping you, those of you who will be that person that somebody comes to and says, hey, will you be one of my 10? What are you going to ask them? Well, let's sit down and let's honestly look at your schedule. And I don't mean a 30-minute meeting. I mean just a 30-second assessment of how you spend your time. I suggest if you'll do that with 10 people, and some of you might be thinking, I can't think of one person whose answer I would like to hear. Because you might know that you don't know anybody well enough because you have no relationships. See, that's a huge sign you're not in Christ. But on the other hand, if you're saying, yeah, I can easily come up with five. In fact, wow, I'm already on 20. Praise God. And go to them and ask them to be honest. I believe that one of the greatest spiritually stymieing inactions in the body of Christ is a lack of willingness to be assessed by others, shown in a lack of willingness to ask for it because you don't really want to know what people think because you don't really want to know the truth. You'd rather live in the lie that things are just fine. So that might sound like a tall order, but I think you'll find it to be very, very productive. I'm going to do it myself. Let's go to the Lord and, and ask him to assess our lives, shall we? Father, we're immensely grateful for Christ and for what he accomplished, and yet we acknowledge that our gratefulness wanes. It's not what it ought to be. And so we don't rest in our gratefulness. We don't rest in our faithfulness. We want to nurture faith in Christ's work the atonement of the Savior. That by doing so, we would not only experience the joy of imputation, Christ's work 
given to us, his righteousness accounted to us, our lives, our sin accounted to him. Not only that we would rest in that joy, but that we would rest in his obedience resulting in ours. That we would long for your glory as it might be proved by drinking deeply and being satisfied in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.